Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is uh, the first day of March Madness of the NCAA tournament, and I'm here at work. Hopefully, uh, some of you have been able to take the time off to watch some good basketball. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about, um, a, a, uh, and this is prompted by a review article. It came out in JCO uh, titled Cancer Treatment-Related Ovarian Dysfunction in Women of Childbearing Potential Management and Fertility Preservation Options, um, which is a good topic um, to discuss that I think I covered in the past, and in working through this, it might have been 2018 when uh, uh, ASCO published some guidelines on this, uh, but uh, that's like five years ago, so I think we can revisit it. Wow, was it five? Yeah, five years ago. So I think we can revisit this um, and talk a bit more about it because I, I've learned some new stuff to share as well. Um, so this is a really nice review article. Uh, I'll provide a link to it in the show notes. Let's talk first about uh, defining ovarian dysfunction. It's been called a lot of different things, premature ovarian failure, uh, which isn't uh, ideal because it's not. sometimes it's not ovarian failure. It can be an interruption. It's not necessarily permanent. Um, chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea. Uh, pr primary ovarian insufficiency or POI and that is what they say is the preferred term because this can be uh, temporary versus permanent as premature ovarian failure uh, suggests uh, and it's defined this primary ovarian insufficiency is a, a menstrual irregularity for at least three months and hypergonadotropic hypogonadism so that is uh, you're not menstruating but you actually have high levels of FSH it's not due to lack of hormone, of, of follicle stimulating hormone, you're trying to stimulate the follicles. FSH is elevated, but you're not getting the, that follicular uh, actual uh, release. So from a uh, pathophysiologic standpoint, chemotherapy damages things in the body. Uh, so we know that uh, cross-linking agents and alkaline agents, intercalating agents, uh, interfere with uh, DNA uh, synthesis uh, of the follicles. Uh, the, those follicles can die. Uh, because of inhibition of microtubules that prevent um, uh, uh, the metaphase from going forward. You can actually destroy, when you destroy the large follicles, then you lose anti-malarian hormone levels, which suppresses the primordial follicular pool, and that there's a finite amount of follicles in this primordial pool that women have, and once they're gone, they're gone. So when you damage the large follicles, you lose the hormone, that keeps the small, the primordial follicles from going. So you end up not just damaging the actual um, uh, growing, like primary follicle, but you then uh, it, basically you burn through, you accelerate the loss of primordial follicles as well. Um, so um, this is bad right? when this happens to women of childbearing potential receiving chemotherapy. Um, so let's talk about uh, drugs that do this. So the, the most common type of drug or the worst offending agent are alkylating agents. Um, uh, all alkylating agents, it's all dose dependent. Uh, platinums as well may be less likely than the true alkylating agents. Um, some uh, anthracyclines as well. Uh, there's a really nice uh, image in this uh, publication, uh, in this review article with what is the highest risk and things like that, including radiation, um, it's possible that uh, anti-angiogenic agents like bevacizumab also because of their effect on uh, preventing angiogenesis have some risk. Uh, vinca alkaloids are a little bit lower risk um, and it's also age patient dependent as well. Um, what is uh, I think nice if you're talking uh, to a patient in a way to try to uh, describe this, especially with alkaline agents, the largest risk uh, 
appears to be with a dose of, of four grams, cumulative lifetime dose of four grams per meter squared of cyclophosphamide. And there is a cyclophosphamide equivalent dose calculator, which I'll also link in the show notes, that is uh, derived from a pediatric oncology uh, study. Uh, it's you can find this uh, calculated at oncofertilityrisk.com. So just to put this into a clear perspective, right? So 400 milligrams per meter squared cumulative lifetime dose of cyclophosphamide carries uh, really the, this uh, kind of high risk. It's a really common drug. So I think that's worth talking about. So if you get AC for four cycles, that's 2,400 milligrams per meter squared. So you're, you know, 60 some percent of the way to that four gram lifetime dose. If you do ARDCHOP for six, you're at 4.5 grams. Uh, per meter squared cumulative lifetime dose above that that high risk threshold, and and I'm just giving this for perspective here, right? Um, now for BACOP, eight cycles of BACOP, not escalated BACOP, but eight cycles of BACOP for Hodgkins carries because of the cytoxin and procarbazine. So you can go into the this cyclophosphamide equivalent dose calculator and calculate how much uh, cyclophosphamide equivalent is in procarbazine, and you get like. 9,999 milligrams per meter square. Um, so certainly a very high risk of a primary ovarian insufficiency with a BACOP regimen, and we know that affects a lot of young patients primarily uh, with Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, we're talking about. So those are some of the risks. Now we have, uh, we have guidelines from, uh, from ASCO and the American Society of Reproductive Medicine who say that this needs to be discussed before beginning cytotoxic chemo. And this is um, this sometimes um, can be forgotten because we get so used, it can, get, it can be missed and forgotten because we're so used to taking care of patients who are, uh, you know, cancer is a disease of the elderly for those of us that work in adult oncology. So uh, sometimes we can we can forget that that 40-year-old woman or, uh, or that 23-year-old woman that we need to consider this and counsel them in, in the chemo education and the informed consent process uh, about the risk of, of potentially not having a child um, later in life is, if that is what's recommended. So it's recommended to talk about that. You should always document that in the medical record, I think, if you do that. There actually, I wasn't aware, there are ways to assess ovarian reserve. So you can check levels of uh, anti-malarian hormone, which apparently is the best. You can, act, you can do an antral, um, uh, where is this? An antral follicular count with a transvaginal ultrasound to try and count the number of follicles left. So you can get an idea uh, of really what is left in that primordial follicle pool. The more that's, uh, the more primordial follicles remaining, uh, the less risk that person is for uh, primary ovarian insufficiency. Now, really the reason I wanted to bring this topic up is to talk about it. And I think we did this back in 2018. So the tried and true and what is recommended by the guidelines first and foremost is uh, oocyte or embryo cryopreservation. Now this takes two to three weeks to do. Um, often may not be available as an inpatient. So you're you, you know, your de novo AML, ALL patient, you probably don't have time to do this. Um, breast cancer patient, you might have time to do this. If it's triple negative, maybe less time. So you may have time to do that, but that is what's recommended because that is the tried and true thing. It is somewhat costly potentially to do that. Uh, in our experience, the insurance approval for that has been hit or miss, but certainly something that should be explored. And that is what is recommended by uh, ASCO and NCCN is to do this. 
Now, uh, gonadotropin-releasing hormone analogs like gosserelin or luprolide have been studied. There are lots and lots of studies uh, using these drugs to basically cause a, uh, a temporary menopause that silences the follicles, so they're not uh, dividing and being released, and that this may protect them from the, uh, the cytotoxic effects of chemotherapy. There are at least seven randomized controlled clinical trials that all kind of show a trend to benefit, but it's not, it's not consistent in terms of statistical significance. Um, and it, sometimes they assess different things. Sometimes it's uh, a duration of like a, a resumption from amenorrhea back to normal menstruation. Sometimes it's hormone levels. Really what it should be is pregnancy. There is at least one study that does show a statistically significant higher rate of pregnancy in a randomized controlled trial of women who got uh, a GnRH analog versus those that didn't. Um, but that's one. And there are several others who, um, who either don't report pregnancy as an outcome or don't have a statistically significant improvement. Um, now, if you have a... And a lot of these studies are probably underpowered because pregnancy is not a thing that's definitely going to happen after you finish chemotherapy. Uh, it takes two to tango, so to speak. Uh, and so there has to be a, a, you know, a desire and uh, a, uh, an intention to conceive in most cases that you can't really probably randomize by do you want to have kids three years from now or not because you can't make that decision three years in advance in, in many cases. Um, so the, to me, the preponderance of evidence suggests there is a small benefit at, at you know, and the, the important thing is, is, is allowing women to have a child if they want to and to conceive and to have a healthy pregnancy. And it, it really seems like if you add everything together, and there are a couple meta-analyses that show this, although there are some that don't, but there are at least two meta-analyses that, that do show a significant increase in the ability to, to have a pregnancy um, after receiving cytotoxic chemo. Um, they're, they're smallish studies, although some of these have a couple hundred patients, uh, but again, probably underpowered um, to, to really see if there is a benefit. So what the ASCO guidelines say is it is an option if proven uh, fertility preservation methods aren't available uh, or time enough. So proven would be that oocyte or embryo cryopreservation, freezing your eggs, as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a lay person may say. Um, but GnRH is an option, something that is uh, that should be considered, and so I'll have a link to the uh, uh, this uh, this review article uh, that would, which does an okay job summarizing this evidence. Uh, the meta analyses probably do a better job summarizing this, but it is an option, uh, and it, um, it is recommended as an option if you can't do the oocyte preservation, which is, is, is really tough to do for a lot of these folks. So, um, so worth pointing out, um, there's also a nice table in here of, of progestin dosing. Uh, if you have, say, an acute leukemia patient who you know is going to be thrombocytopenic for several weeks uh, and you want to suppress their, their menstrual period so they don't have bleeding complications while they're thrombocytopenic. So you can find the dose in here for medroxyprogesterone, 10, 20 milligrams daily, uh, or norethindrone, or, or whatever. Um, you can find some of that information there as well. So I think it's a useful resource uh, that you, uh, you may want to have handy. Uh, or if you're like me, what I've started doing uh, as, as the person who does this podcast is I will uh, use the show notes as a bit of a, uh, a library repository and I'll go back and say, oh, I did that episode a year or so ago. Let me go find the show notes for that to find that link, um, which is not one of the plans when starting the podcast, but that's what I'm doing anyway. Um, so thank you all so much for listening. 
Uh, you can follow the um, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNip, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm-hmm.